0: Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein.
1: Tim, we are back with a doctor this week. I know some people call me Dr. Funkenstein. I'm not a doctor. I have no qualifications as such.
0: We have a, we have a real doctor here. This is, this is going to be pretty good. I didn't. You know, honestly, the first time I met him, I didn't even know the word doctor was in, was, should be in front of his name. Professor? Doctor? No. I met him out in industry. I had no idea he'd gotten nice. his PhD, so I, I completely missed it. He invited me over to Lafayette and said, Hey, come, we got this, this opportunity over here come show this thing to me. And I go out there and we yuck it up and spend a few days, spend a day in Lafayette. And then I head back to Houston and that's that. So interesting. So well, yeah, go ahead, Tim. I was going to say with that, I mean, I asked, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Spath, uh, the department head of petroleum engineering at Texas A&M university to come on. I think it's pretty gig'em. topical gig'em. talking about gig We're all decked out. I'm, I'm <laughs> all set up. I, I was all geeked up for this thing. So I got my hat and jacket on and everything, but you know, I thought it'd be interesting to talk about energy transition and what's it like to be, a uh, uh, department head at a university with covid and all the other things going on there's a lot of distractions so that'd be really good to bring on dr spath so dr spath welcome on to tripping over the barrel it's uh, good to have you
2: thanks for having me tim it's uh, i know we've we've tried for many months to get this uh, together so i'm glad it's finally happening
0: yeah well i mean I, obviously you're i know the kind of uh busyness we were talking about before we got on the air the types of things that you have to deal with day to day what types of fires come up all the time so it's it's difficult to kind of get a block of time for something like this and we really appreciate you coming on
2: well um, I'm, I'm happy to do it i think it's an interesting time in petroleum engineering education so i'm sure we're going to touch on uh on quite a few interesting subjects
0: oh we're we're all fired up about it energy transition Everything that's going on in the world, COVID, there's a lot to a lot to go over.
1: And, and coming in after this should be after Laura Palmer, right? I think in the sequence. And we talked a lot about um, Bitcoin mining and how that's going to play sort of into the the future. Here we talked about ESG, energy transition, and also about uh, some of the the mindset from the kids at the School of Mines, who I met with Colin McClellan and a few others. Um, last week out here in in Colorado, a a smaller group than I think traditionally they've had. But I think that's a it's a good segue into, Dr. Spath, um, your your viewpoint, right? So I'm curious, just as someone who's in the industry, and at this point, I'm sort of stuck, like I'm I'm not going anywhere. But what is the mindset of the people who are 19 to 22, 23 years old on you're going into an industry that is clearly facing scrutiny um, under the current administration, uh, change is inevitable, a focus on ESG energy transition is in play. But and we talk about this all the time, Tim, oil and gas isn't going away anytime soon. 100 million doesn't go to zero overnight. So I'm curious, uh, Dr. Spath, what you see um, sort of from from your purview uh, at Texas A&M and the Reservoir Engineering Department. And then take us a little bit about you know your path to where you got today. Petroleum engineering.
0: reservoirs I'm, a small part, Jeremy. I'm, I'm sure sorry. I, don't, I don't want to have him having to correct you. I'll do it.
1: I was rolling. I was tripping over my words. I mean, I'm, not, you you know, I'm not the engineer here, so I'm trying. There
2: right? we go. Well, we'll, uh, we'll cut you some slack. Uh, so to the first part of your question, you know, what attracts the 19 to 21-year-olds to this industry? I think um, one of the things, particularly here at A&M, you know, we're fortunate that we're a little over an hour from the energy capital of the world. And so a lot of our students and prospective students come from the oil and gas. They come from, you know, their their mother, their father, their uncle, their, you know, who, somebody in the family has been in the industry. And so we get a lot of, we get a lot of students uh, from petroleum engineering families. Uh, and, and, you know, that's, like I said, that's fortunate for us being so close to to Houston. But I think the other thing you hit on is is, is relevant, which is they know, at least most of them, and and all of them should know that oil and gas is not going away. And you know, coming out of high school, if they had a tendency, if they excelled in math and science and physics and all the rest, and they knew they wanted to be an engineer and they were intrigued by the oil and gas business, then uh, most of them continued on their way. And of course, myself and our A team of advisors and our faculty, former students, uh, we all do marketing, uh, trying to get prospective students to join our department. And we do that by, you know, a lot of the things we're probably going to talk about, which is the the, the fact that oil and gas isn't going away. Uh, Energy demand is going to increase with population. We know that energy intensity is increasing. Um, And so, you know, with respect to all of the competing energy sources, uh, you know, I'm very optimistic about this industry, obviously. And I think I share that, uh, that optimism with the faculty here and with former students. And so it's kind of a, it's kind of, there's a lot of us that spend a lot of our time working with prospective students, getting them to come here. Um, Now to the second part of your question, uh things were a little different when i got out of school you know in the in the uh in the, in the old days the mid 80s i got out in 1984 which was a, mm. a horrible time to get out oh, saying, <laughs> it's got to be as bad think, as it gets right uh
0: 83 could be the only worse i think uh
2: slightly worse you're right uh i didn't quite you know time it as badly as possible but it you know what's interesting is if you if you did a time shift of uh, 35 years or so, you can exactly overlay the almost bell-shaped curve from the 80s to today. And what I tell students, I I tell a lot of the students, you know, I, I wish I was a freshman or a sophomore right now in petroleum engineering, because in the next few years there's going to be a demand like you have never seen. Well, we we saw it in the in the early 90s, right, and we saw it as recently as the early uh, 2010s when yep. Yep. Uh, be, because of lack of investment, because of uh, lack of capital, because of lack of recruiting. Uh, if, you're, if you're about to get out with a petroleum engineering degree, you're going to write your own ticket. Uh, but going back to the 80s, uh, I had exactly one job offer. Uh, and so guess what? I took it. It was with a, a subsidiary at that time of Schlumberger called Flow Patrol Johnston. And they did well testing. I'm sure Tim remembers that that company. I do. And uh, as it was my only offer, uh, I didn't hesitate, and I spent the first two to three years of my career working in you know horrible conditions in the swamps of South Louisiana and offshore in dirty coveralls, running drill stem tests, thinking, "What the hell did I just get a?" a, a, a <laughs> four-year petroleum engineering degree for, and and look at what I'm doing.
0: Probably swinging a sledgehammer
2: a time or two. Uh, yeah, hauling, a, you know, using a 36-inch pipe wrench to, to break connections, and that oh, was horrible.
0: I, I'm, uh, I'm <laughs> smiling because this is what I did with Dowell. I'm out there, we're making up yeah, yeah. pipes,
2: swinging sledgehammers, and, you know. Yeah, hauling chicksons. I know. Oh, I, did that. Just- I did that too. And so you know, looking back, I wouldn't have traded that for anything. And it and it made great experience uh, for today when I advise students and they come and say, Hey, uh, you know, what do you think about going to work for a service company? You know, they, 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 a lot of students think that that's second fiddle or, you know, they'd rather go to work for a, for a major producer. And I say, no, 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 no. There's nothing wrong with going to work for a major producer, but Working for a service company, you you have so much more opportunity, both geographically and uh, domain-wise. I mean, as Tim knows, uh, so it, I, I ended up spending thirty-two years with Slumberjey, and I did everything from swing uh, swinging a, a sledgehammer to uh, executive manager. So, well, let, uh, and, let's and, and, let's and hit scale, on that a little bit: sales, engineering, uh, marketing, everything else in between. I want to hit on that a little bit. There's a
0: lot of ways to go with this, but I felt pressure when I was in school. I'm class of '92, so maybe a couple of years after you, Zips. I felt a, Zips '92. I felt a lot of pressure to go to work for an operator or a major, so a name that I had heard of, you know, yeah. before I even started school, and I, I felt like there was a you accept the job with Dowell or. Uh, key services or whoever else is hiring out there in service industry, which at the time was still, that was the predominant hiring at, in 92 anyway. And, you know, it w- was a great experience to go that route. And it's, and it's really, I've never gone to work. I've never worked in an operator before. How does, I mean, I, st- I think that still exists. Everyone that I'm sure these guys want to come out and go work for Oxy or, um, Chevron or something like that. These names, I yeah. know. Yeah, is there still that pressure that you know you don't want to go work for a service company because that's where the research, that's where all the new stuff is yeah. coming.
2: I, I wouldn't. I don't know if I'd call it pressure. Uh, first of all, thanks for saying that you're only a few years uh, behind me. <laughs> but anyway, it's, um, it's not so much pressure because you know right now with the job market as it is, um, they're taking whatever jobs they get uh, but I certainly encourage them uh, to not just focus on the oxies and the chevrons and the exons and all the rest in fact i the first of every semester i i get them together and i i play a trick on them i ask them uh, what it is they want to do in, in their career i said how many if you if you want to work all over the globe in exciting uh sometimes hostile conditions uh, raise your hands and you know most of them normally raise their hands. And I said, if you want to work in a variety of domain, such as sales or research or marketing or engineering or out in the field or management, um, if you want to do, if you want to have that flexibility, raise your hand. And of course, most of them raised their hand. And uh, I ask them three or four questions. And then I say, okay, well, I guess none of you uh, want to go to work for a, uh, a major oil company. Now, <laughs> you, you don't work for an <laughs> operator then, do you? You should go to work for a big service company. Yeah. Now, yeah. You, you mentioned key services. Okay, you know, if, you, if that's your job offer, go take it and work hard and work your way up and everything else. But if you're talking about Schlumberger, Halliburton, Baker, GE, um, you know, Technique, you, you, some of these bigger companies, you're going to see the world. You're going to do everything from A to Z and uh, you're going to have a fabulous career yeah you're and
0: it's good their job's gonna change every year and a half about
2: yeah, and likely so is your location mm. and of course so, that's that's good for some and and not so good for others so
1: well that's that's Tim and I in a nutshell. I don't want to go anywhere, I'm staying in the house that I'm going to be in forever, <laughs> and Tim's ready to go to uh I don't know Indonesia or Abu Dhabi or wherever they want to send him right well that's true it's,
2: right? it's it's funny you mentioned Indonesia because uh we lived all over the world and and if you ask Mike my kids, what their favorite place was. And I mean we lived in Paris and London and Rio and all the rest, wow. uh, they, they choose Indonesia. Wow. Because huh. It was just so, um, I mean, it was exotic, you know, who'd have thought that we'd be living in Jakarta where, you know, we're a one hour flight from Bali. We're an hour and a half flight from uh, th- Thailand. And, you know, we saw, we saw all of Asia, in my three year stint there um, now it wasn't without its i won't pretend it wasn't without its uh, you know downsides every every Houston has its downsides um, you know i remember and we may we may get to some travel stories later, but I remember one of my favorites was uh being woke up in the middle of the night in Jakarta and being asked to gather what I could take with me and my wife and children and got in the back of a jeep with a bunch of automatic weapons uh and driven to the military base so we could be uh uh evacuated to uh singapore so wow, was that dur-
0: during the bali uh yeah. terrorist attack or
2: well no it was during uh the overthrow of saharto president saharto okay and uh we were actually evacuated twice once when the families were there which was obviously um, not very fun but once when it was just the guys or the, I should say the essential staff and uh, all we could do, Tim, was stay there two weeks and do nothing but play golf. So,
1: oh, uh, that that was, terrible.
2: You know, Wow, you know, there's good and bads to every place. But anyway, <laughs> um, back, back to the point. Uh, the point is, if you want to if you want to move around the world and see exciting places, uh, uh, you. You know, these days you can do that with the Chevron and ExxonMobil, but in the 80s, you know, it was the big service companies that provided that opportunity. Yeah. So
1: so you mentioned the students that go to Texas A&M and become petroleum engineers are oftentimes legacies, right? Maybe people that had even gone to A&M, uh, you know, in their family or people whose parents had worked in the industry I'm wondering if that means when you have these kids that are enrolling right out of high school, do they have a pretty high level understanding already of oil and gas and you don't really need to start on chapter one? Or do you go back and say, wipe the slate clean from everything your mom and dad told you at the table you know, over Thanksgiving and this is how we teach yeah. you petroleum engineering?
2: Yeah, well, it, it varies, of course. Uh, but we get a lot of students uh, who don't know anything about the business and we have to um, we have to try to shift their thinking from what they read in the media and what they hear on the news and what the politicians try to tell them and everything else. And you know, it's pretty easy to convince them if they're if they're you know if, if they're up on current events and all the rest to to realize that petroleum engineering is a is a field that's going to be around for decades to come. Um, the other thing, though, is like I said in the beginning, we do a lot of marketing and as as with a lot of universities now, our freshman year curriculum in engineering is common. Okay, so it doesn't matter if you're petroleum, civil, nuclear, aerospace, blah, blah, blah. Um, your first year curriculum is identical. And so you have that year on campus to check out all of these different majors, all of these different departments. And so the departments like ours, we have events throughout the year where we invite freshmen, We we give them free pizza to make sure they show up, and then we we teach them a little bit about the oil and gas industry. We may show them a video uh, I'll speak I'll you know we've got excellent faculty here, uh, a lot of whom have spent their early careers in industry so you know it's really a competition to try to attract these students to the respective departments and we when we talk about what we just talked about, which is you know a global Working environment, the flexibility to do whatever you want to do, and oh, by the way, the highest paying uh, salary of any major on campus. You know, I I always try to save that one until last. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't want to try to lead them on to to, to salaries, um, but that's a fact. Uh, petroleum engineering is the highest paying profession coming out of university. That's published all over the place. So. So it's a little bit above. And it, to
0: that was interesting, you know, I was one of those guys that I was I was attracted in because of the scholarships they were offering uh back in the mid 90s basically to anyone who took the SAT, let alone scored well on it. So I I came in, took, you know, took some uh, scholarship money and decided I really liked it, but I knew nothing about the industry other than, you know, what I put in my car. And The first thing I had to learn in Dr. Russell's class was I I had no concept of porosity. I thought, in fact, that we were drilling into a cave in the ground and the oil was just sitting (laughs) in a – and we do a horrible job in the industry labeling things. We call it a
2: pool of oil. So in my mind, in fact, it was a pool. It's okay. We all thought that. Yeah. (laughs) That's really funny.
0: So I thought we were drilling into a cave. We're going to just suck it out of some yeah. underground cave. And st- exactly. instead, it's in, you know, basically microscopic pores that we're, yeah. we're pulling out of rocks. You know, that,
2: that's, a, that's a good subject to transition into because, of course, I thought the same thing. I'm teasing you. Um, most people do think that. and You just put a big straw in it, you know, and, and suck it out. But, but one of the things I mentioned, I make sure I mention far before I talk about salaries, is how exciting the technologies are in this industry. I mean, when you think about what we do as a profession, it's really, it's really um, awesome. You know, when you combine, when, cool. when you think about um, drilling into a reservoir that might be as small as this office. Um, and, and from hitting, two miles it, you know, away, 8,000 8, 8, feet deep, and these days, you know, ten to 12,000 feet laterally, uh, without, able, without the ability to see what you're doing, you're relying on uh, measurements, uh, three-dimensional resistivity, nuclear measurements, uh, all of these very exciting uh, you know, physics that goes on in finding, developing, and producing oil wells. It's just fascinating.
0: I mean, just Jeremy, I'll put it I'll put in perspective. I, this, when sure. I talk to laymen all the time, it's, hey, imagine being two miles away past the pot shops that you, you have to go to, Jeremy, and you're going <laughs> to drill a piece of pipe. You're going to push a piece of pipe, and you need to hit the office you're sitting in, that small of a square, 10 by 10 square, and you're going to hit it now, 99% of the time, you're going to hit that exact spot. Uh, it's it's a fascinating thing and i think that's what drew me to it was in petroleum engineering you're working on things you can't see feel or touch but you have an understanding and you know unlike the civil engineering where you can actually go crush a piece of concrete yeah. which is it's equally fascinating but to me it was just it really stuck to me is that i'm working on things that i know i will never see that reservoir. I will never actually see the reservoir, but I know a lot of things about it based on all of the things that we've measured over time. Yeah. This is it's, fascinating.
2: It's funny, guys, because I, uh, I tease the, so my peer, uh, three or four buildings down, the department head of aerospace, you know, they're always considered, you know, the rocket scientists, the graduates go to work for NASA. And I, and I tease them and I say, look, we guys, we got you guys beat. Because, I mean, you do fancy things, things that I certainly don't understand, um, but you do it at exactly zero PSI. You know, what could be simpler? We, we do it at 20,000, <laughs> you know, and it, at uh, 400 degrees, maybe. So, you know, don't come to me and tell me uh, that NASA is the high tech place. We, we do things far more difficult, far more interesting than, than what, uh, what aeronautical engineers do.
1: Uh, no question about it. And this is this is really fun for me. You know, Tim and I, uh, Dr. Spath, Tim and I have very different paths. Tim went to a and I grew up in, in the Northeast in New England. I sort of ended up um, in oil and gas technology sales. But, but to tie it back, like Tim, you said one of the things that really drew you in was the uh, complexity, the data, the science, and just how cool the engineering and the geology really is. And my view on it was a little bit different in that I was blown away by the technology in the field and at the wellhead versus what was in the back office, right? In 2007, 2008, when I got into oil and gas, other industries were embracing cloud, they're embracing SaaS, um, you know, and it was still very much on premise with older databases and legacy platforms in the back office. And then I look in the field and it's like, oh my God, the stuff that they're doing with with real-time drilling and like Dr. Spath said, you go mile and a half down, you go two miles to the left, not in a straight line, and you find that exact spot to get. And my thought was, it's always going to be some of the best technology in the world out in the field. And eventually, the back office will catch up. And now I'm starting to actually believe that we're in that phase where the back office will catch up and have that sort of same level of technology they do in the
0: field. All you have to do is look at the amount of money being spent when they're putting that drill bit in the ground. To yep. You can feel where the technology investment goes is the amount of money being spent along that, along that path. So.
2: Yeah. And the amount of the amount of computing power required by some of these companies, I mean, it dwarfs, uh, you know, even the even the government in terms of computing horsepower. The the biggest users of high performance computing is uh, is the oil and gas industry, whether it's, uh, you know, processing the geophysical data, the seismic data, or whether it's running uh, numerical simulation, trying to model what's going to happen in the future of some of these oil and gas wells.
0: One as we as we recorded last week, mining for Bitcoin using uh, mm-hmm. stranded gas out in the field. Yeah. So,
1: you know, my message, if any of you know the people listening to this one are A and M students and they hadn't you know been a part of this podcast before, if you if you're into data. Like, this is the best industry you could possibly be in. Just the amount of different data feeds, the complexity of the data, how it all flows interdepartmentally to uh, optimize, automate, uh, you know, leverage artificial intelligence with is is just absolutely incredible. Like, it, it is so – I love going into, you know, well, what is it, Well Database or – Or drilling info and look at like okay, what were the recent IPs and then what went into this drilling? And I'm not even an engineer, but I just find that so fascinating. This data is all out there, and everybody can evaluate what their peers are doing, and still maybe remain a step behind or try to do something to stay ahead. But it's all data driven.
0: So that's a good segue. I'd I'd love to. I'm going to switch to Jeff instead of Doctor Spath. Too many syllables.
2: That's that's fine with me. And 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 by the way, um, uh. I go by Jeff in this building, which is highly unusual. Uh even a lot of the students will call me Jeff, which I which I prefer. As he dropped know, handles.
0: That's a by AM term, he just dropped handles
2: with you, Jeremy. Yeah. Well as you as you started off saying, you you never knew I was a PhD when you worked with me at Slumberjay. Why would it why what's the difference?
1: You know, my friend uh, Jimbo, uh, we go on a first name basis <laughs> over there. So I don't know how unusual it is for you. It could
2: be different. For yeah. You. Now you're just, now you're just name dropping.
0: Yeah. So I I do want to, so I want to go back to the little, the statement that Jeremy made about the data science and it, and I've sat through two of your kind of state of the, the, uh, department speeches. What is the, what is the department doing to address the changes in the industry? Whether that's ESG, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe even other, uh, uh, alternative energies, the transition, data science. What, what are the things you're doing to stay up with the industry? Because it's not just going back to the old, you know, studying McLaren series like we
2: did way back in the day or something like that. Well, uh, firstly, I'm impressed you remember your McLaren series.
0: I don't remember. I just remember the two words, McLaren and
2: series. We st- we still do teach that. There's nothing better than inverting matrices than. Oh no! Training.
0: I'm going to get. Oh, no, I'm getting sick. But, oh, but no. anyway, um, that
2: is a, that is a great question, and I I would imagine it's something on the minds of of all of the listeners. So uh, we obviously, you know, w- when you think about it, the customers of this department are the are the companies that recruit our students, right? And so. Just like in in business, we have to keep up with the needs of our customers, and they've come since I've been here almost four years now. They've they've come to campus. They talk to us and say we we need people that have more data analytic expertise because, as you rightly mentioned, um, you know, data has exploded because the number of sensors have exploded. Uh, our understanding has exploded, and and not only is it a it, the the data is so voluminous, but it's it's in in many disparate forms, you know. And this I think is what part of Tim's company does is is try to bring together everything from seismic waveforms to physical core to uh, output from myriad applications to log data. I mean, it's it's just all over the map. Um, so we put two courses together in our undergraduate curriculum. One is a an elective and you can take that at any point in your uh, curriculum. The other one, which I think is a testament to how important uh, this subject has become, it's a required class now. You have to take a three hour class in data analytics. And when we thought about how to do this, I wanted to make sure that data analytics was taught in the department. They They can easily go across campus to the statistics department and take data analytics, but I want them to learn data analytics as applied to the oil and gas business. So they're learning data analytics around drilling, around production, around reservoir, around completions, um, you know you you name it. and so um, we have to listen to our customers, and that's what they told us, and so that's what we did. Um, and that's a good example. Another example is uh, that you mentioned, Tim is ESG. Um, as our as the oil and gas companies uh, broaden their portfolio, we have to broaden the portfolio of skills of our graduates, or they're not going to get hired, right? So, to that to that extent, we are bringing in other courses. We're developing a geothermal class as I, as we speak. Um, we have a hydrates lab, methane hydrates, uh, right down the hall. Uh, We look at um, hydrogen, we're looking at hydrogen storage, obviously carbon sequestration is uh, on everyone's mind. So, yeah, we're we're slowly bringing these topics uh, to the forefront uh, because, again, our 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 customers, our recruiters are asking us to. Now, we're not flipping a switch and saying no more completion engineering, no more hydraulic fracturing, no more uh, McLaren series, you know. (laughs) we're we're uh we're doing this slowly, and I you know my strategy is to keep up with the industry as it as it moves towards this. you know, let's take Chevron, for example. So Chevron uh, just announced they're putting more of their capEx into green energies, okay? So now if Chevron's going to hire our students, they need to know a little bit about geothermal. They need to know a little bit about carbon sequestration. They need to know a little bit about how hydrogen can augment uh, the, the renewables, all of these things. Um, on the other hand, ConocoPhillips is another great example of a company who just made two huge uh, unconventional acquisitions. One with Concho, so they, they bought the company. Yep. And then uh, just a couple months ago, they bought, I think, for eight or nine billion uh, shells assets in the Permian. So they're, they're doubling down on shale and unconventional, which is a great thing and uh and and so you know, Ryan Lance was here on campus a couple of weeks ago and said, "Make sure you don't abandon traditional petroleum engineering because we're still recruiting traditional petroleum engineers, so it has to be a blend of those two, and the way you do that is to offer minors, uh you offer certificates, uh you know, you offer electives, and then uh, it's up to the student to pick and choose." Uh, exactly what what their curriculum looks like at the end of the day. Really cool.
0: So one of the, one of the other things that's happened here recently, I'm going to go ahead and plug Jay here. Jay was a classmate of mine, Jay Graham, and he also came in with a vision that a lot of petroleum engineers are going to be the guys that are running oil companies. You know, in their future, and they really don't have a good background, you know, out of the box, in running an oil company or being in the business. And so yeah. he had this vision of, hey, let's go partner up and morph the industry and give them an option to go learn a little bit more about business. You want to talk about that? I think I think that's a certificate program. If I don't, if I remember, right. Right.
2: it is, and I'm glad you brought that up because it's it's called the Petroleum Venture that. Sorry, the Jay Graham Petroleum Ventures uh, program. Wow, that's cool! <laughs> Thanks to to Jay and his wife for uh, donating and getting that started.
0: Nice. Um,
2: but it really does differentiate our graduates from other petroleum engineering graduates, and and, and it does that by combining uh, our number one ranked petroleum engineering program with the May School of Business. And when you're when you're a senior petroleum engineering student, you can take four senior level finance courses from the Mays School of Business. Uh, and so that's a certificate, okay, four, four classes, that's 12 hours. And uh, I'll tell you what, we, we have yet to have somebody graduate with that combination who didn't, who not only didn't have a job, uh, they didn't, none of them had less than two jobs from which to choose. I mean, because imagine how valuable that person is when they graduate with petroleum engineering degree, and oh, by the way, I have twelve hours of senior level finance and economic courses. <laughs> I mean, so not only amazing, not only those who wish to to go into, um, you know, to want to be an entrepreneur right away, but those that go to work for companies, whether it's. Um, you know, a a small independent in the Permian to Chevron. They all want people with an economics background because that, at the end of the day is, is, you know, what it boils down to. It's a very successful program. Do
1: do you get um, international as well as people from the Northeast, or is your concentration a lot of, you know, Texas and Oklahoma?
2: Well, I I have to divide that answer into two parts. the the first part is undergraduate and there we have about 90% domestic uh, US citizens sure uh but they come from all over the US in fact we have a young lady here uh from uh, Pennsylvania who I was teasing her because she didn't she didn't want to go to Penn State she drove halfway across the country to come to college station you know um and then and then you have the graduate program is flipped so 90% of our graduate enrollment are foreign nationals.
1: That makes sense to me. And most because of those it's Houston,
2: right? come sponsored from mm. companies that we could all name, uh, Aramco, uh, CNOC, Pertamina, Petrobras, Petronas. All of the national oil companies send their best and brightest employees to A&M to get their master's and PhD degrees.
1: Fantastic. And I'm wondering, too, on the technology side, since since that's where I sit, a lot of these people will will come right out and be put in jobs where they'll be using software products that have been around forever. Call it an an Aries or or IHS or uh, SAP, even in some cases, WellView. Um, Do you guys do you actually let people get their hands into um, some of the industry solutions when they're in school? And and sort of what does that look like to help build some of that uh, experience and expertise around tech?
2: Yeah, great question. And the the short answer is uh, absolutely. Uh, What I have this the same philosophy philosophy here that I had in industry, which is you know if if you have a bright engineering student or a bright engineer, um, you don't want to dictate what it is they use uh, to solve a problem. Uh, Now here at university, we have. I mean, I have to sign uh, annual license updates, you know, uh, at least once a week, because we have almost every company you mentioned uh, providing their software, and this is something that Slumberjay started uh, years ago when I was running their software division. Uh, we thought it was a good idea to put Eclipse and Petrel and Marac, Tim, and you know some of the OGCi products that that we inherited. Uh, we put those in engineering. Programs primarily because we wanted the students to get to fall in love with them and to get used to using them, so that when they graduated, they said, "Hey, how come how come you're using this simulator and not Eclipse, or how come you're using Kingdom for petrophysics instead of this product which I'm comfortable with from university?" So um, you can imagine the how much time our students spend using software. You know when when. When Tim was here, and certainly when I was here, you know, we had to write our own Fortran code if we wanted to use software, which was a royal pain in the ass. Um, And now we're bombarded with companies using the summer model saying, here, take our software free of charge, as many licenses as you want. And they'll even come and provide training. They'll come and provide maintenance because they know the value of all of these students using their product.
1: Especially if some of these kids are going to be running companies, sitting on boards eventually, uh, yeah. those relationships are going to pay off.
2: It's yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. So it, it, it's really a big part. Again, we we don't focus on software in in teaching because you know we we don't want to we don't want to spend our valuable time saying okay you hit this button and then this button and then. we're we teach what goes on behind the scenes so that they can use any software. Uh, that helps them solve the problem? You know, what are the, what are the fundamentals? What are the algorithms? And of course, back to uh, data analytics, Tim, uh, we're, we're utilizing software now that's heavy into machine learning because this is the, the buzzword du jour, you know? Oh Oh, yeah.
0: yeah. It's all, it's all heading that way. I've got so many topics and we're running out of time. I wanted to hit a couple of things for you. I want uh, a couple of, couple of softballs for you, but, Enrollment in petroleum engineering departments around the country took off in the 2012, 13, 14, 15, and then kind of, well, we had a a little bit of trouble and everything changed. And what I find interesting is the philosophy that Texas A&M specifically took was, you know, we're not going to let this thing grow crazy like mm-hmm. we saw at some of the, I won't name them because that this is not what I want to get it be about here. But where they we put a cap, said, hey, we're we going to graduate about this many, and we're still at that level. Is that that's basically it? So and now we're probably the number one enrollment again.
2: Uh, that's so yeah. Several things you said are true. The first is that we did limit, and I was on the uh, advi- industry advisory board when we did this years ago. We said we would never get above six hundred undergraduate. And at the time, many uh, of the peer petroleum engineering departments around the country were growing, you know, ad infinitum. You know, they just opened the gates and, and, you know, they were getting into the, uh, you know, the thousands of undergraduate students. And, of course, they weren't increasing their faculty at the same rate. And so, you know, student faculty ratio went way up. So, what happens? Quality goes way down, and uh, the customers once again uh, decide not to recruit from those particular departments so we we kept it at six hundred uh we are below that now we we have declined there's no doubt um, but to a much lesser extent than many other programs uh we are in fact, the last three semesters were more or less flat undergraduate, and I don't think. Uh, there's another, there might be one other uh, university that can say that, uh, but but we're flat. Um, so that's undergraduate again, and graduate, of course, everyone, not just petroleum engineering, but engineering in general, enrollment is down across the board in graduate school. And we all know why, because they they can't either get a visa or they can't physically get on a plane and get here the last 18 months. So uh, this is why universities are struggling right now. But back to petroleum engineering, uh we're at a we're at a good where we are vis-a-vis uh, our faculty count. We're we're in a good spot right now. If 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 I had two hundred more students I uh come and say they want to start, I probably wouldn't let them all in because we you know we focus on quality quality over quantity, and I think that's paid off when you look around the industry at some of the success. That our graduates have had.
0: Okay, so all right, another topic that I did want to hit. You came in your four in year four of your tenure, um, or something like that. And COVID hits you in in you know half halfway in now. What two years ago? Yeah. What's it like running a department? I mean, if I remember right, it was March. Yeah. When I said, okay, all the students go home. What? Hell must that have been like for your team to to well, to
2: navigate that? Yeah, that's that's a pretty good word to use. Um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you exactly how it affected faculty. It exactly doubled their workload. <laughs> Yikes! Because because <laughs> you had students here physically, which we were obliged to teach physically af- after they came back, of course. Uh, and then we could not make them come to class, uh, but they were registered and they've paid their tuition, so we had to accommodate them virtually. And so, imagine you're a professor; you have to teach, you have to teach twice. So it, it exactly doubled. And from my standpoint, as a department head, oh, I can't count how many Zoom meetings I had with upper administration talking about. You know sanitizing and how you know lockdown of the building and and how we are just going through the the motions you know the day in and day out operations of running buildings and and making sure we don't exceed our lab capacity uh maintaining our six foot uh social distancing I mean they're just incredible amount of minutia that we had to go through in order to keep the students uh safe and healthy um And to a certain extent, that still goes on, although we are we are operating. I want to make sure I get this point in. uh, We are operating in a 100 percent post pandemic world. Okay, so I have uh, I have, for example, I have a a research meeting uh, day after tomorrow, and I'm inviting a lot of industry people here to come listen to our students present their research. And a lot of the people are saying, well, can I attend virtually? And I say, no. Because wow. the, the pandemic is behind us here at Texas A&M. We are 100% in class, and uh, we are 100% uh, face-to-face when it comes to meetings.
0: Jeremy, you think they can pull that off in Colorado, that statement?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm never on campuses, Tim. <laughs> yeah. um, can you tell your dog to shut the fuck up?
0: <laughs> Sorry about that. Oh,
2: oh, just yeah. I just
1: wanted to swear in front of an educator. I was going to
2: say I think he just dropped that f bomb to that make us feel at ease. That was you. It. That so was. You. We, so now we can do that.
1: <laughs> no, that was for you. No, I, I can only imagine the the hell that 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 would be. And I'm I'm glad from the ex, the student experience in person is is so incredibly valuable. And I, I've talked about this with Colin McClellan a bunch that. It irritated me early on when he was like, you don't need an education. Education's not important. I'm like, for you, right? Like you're a born entrepreneur. You can go that route and that works. For me, I don't remember a lot of the things I learned in college as a history major, but it socialized me and put me yeah. in a position where I could be around high achievers and people who were destined for, for greatness and see what, how they put in the work. And how they did it. And I think I, I get the sense AM has that sort of competitive atmosphere. Yeah, too. well, you know,
2: I mean, we all know how significant the social component is, uh, particularly at the university level. Uh, you know, you don't have your student associations, you don't have your intramural sports, you don't have uh, the Dixie Chicken across the street that I know Tim is very. Uh, uh, taking you there
1: too jeremy (laughs) i want to go man let's find a game next year
2: so yeah this this was a huge component and but but all of the social aspects aside what we're seeing and this isn't unique to this department it's not unique to this university what we are seeing is a reduction in particularly on the math side uh, the students that have come back. I mean, can you imagine trying to learn differential equations virtually oh, on goodness. Zoom with your dog running around and your little brother and, you know, uh, wanting to play? And I mean, we're, we're seeing uh, a reduction. I mean, it's not it's not huge, but, you know, we're having to play uh, tutor a lot of times to some of the, the, the sophomores that come into our uh, lectures that are supposed to be fluent in differential equations and physics 212 and you name it and they're not um so this is this is just a byproduct of the virtual uh, education they've had
0: jeff i took differential equations and i walked out of the final looked at the guy i was walking with and said look i don't know what the hell we just learned yeah i got an a in the course i have no idea and i i, I just jettisoned everything so you're you're again you're making me sick to my stomach discussing those <laughs> things but well, I, I do want to go on the more personal side with you in particular. You spent 32 years with Schlumberger. One of those years was president of the SPE, yeah. you know, international. I mean, that's crazy big, and I know it's a lot of, a lot of things going on. What's it like – because not a lot of the department heads have a full career in industry and then come back into academia. What's that? What has that transition for you been like? And you've also got the SPE part in there. I I don't know if that's helpful or not in that.
2: Well, uh, can I use your word? Uh, uh, It was hell. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Uh, It it was. I mean, you know, I I took this role because uh, uh, I wanted to give back to my university, my alma mater. I wanted to uh, work with students and advise them, and that part of my job I absolutely love. The problem is that's a very small part of my job. Uh, I spend a lot of my time dealing with the administration, uh the red tape, the bureaucracy, whatever you want to call it um, and I thought, Tim, that I understood politics and bureaucracy coming from a company the size of Slumberger, but it it pales in comparison to a large i might I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but you know at, at a at a huge state owned or state run university. Uh, there's just a ton of administrative headaches. And so that I'm still getting used to. Mm. And, you know, I was in, as an executive in summer, Jay, I would walk up to employees and say, I want this done this way now, uh, you know, on my desk tomorrow at 8 a.m., maybe 7.30. So I have time to look at it first and and it'd be there. And they'd, yeah. you know, especially in summer, Jay, you know, they'd click their heels together and salute and say, yes, sir. <laughs> and, and here, I try to do that. And, you know, and a, and a full tenured professor will say, uh, yeah, if I can get around to it, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll you know. <laughs> that's the old summer day
0: philosophy, uh, anytime, anywhere, right?
2: That's right. You, in Somerge, yeah, it's like the military. You say no once and then uh, and then it's yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you that's know, fine. how high. But anyway, <laughs> there, there, that's just one example. And I'm and I'm I'm blowing it up a little bit. But. Um, it, it was a huge shift in mentality. It really was. And I, I, I think I've managed it okay. Uh, I uh, got some great advice from my, one of the preceding department heads, Dr. Holditch, who I know you, you knew very well. Uh, he told me to make two lists, one, a, a list of the things I like to do in my job and a list of the things that I don't like to do in my job and delegate the latter one. And and focus on the on the first one, and so that's what I try to do. Wow! So Problem is you, you can't delegate everything.
0: Yeah, we're we're coming up on the end of this here, but you've had a very full career uh, with Slumberjay again, anytime, anywhere, so you, all over the place, A and M, SPE. Uh, I, I'm, I'm tempted to ask the most exotic place. What in your travels? What is the most remote, weirdest place that you've been? Mm as part of the industry, not just going trekking across Mongolia for fun, but well, <laughs> where is the industry taking you?
2: The industry, I'll give you just one example, because could, we could spend another hour talking about that. But one example, and it was when I was SPE president, you know, one of the few perks of being SPE president, a lot of work, uh, is to you get to choose where the, the board of directors meets. Uh, there you go. Year. And so... Uh, I, I picked a place that was just coming out of a 30-year uh, nightmare, actually, uh, Myanmar. And Myanmar was starting to open up to the West. Uh, president Obama at that time had just visited Aung San Suu. And they're trying to get a fledgling democracy going. And uh, and they have huge oil and gas reserves. So I told the SBE board, and, and of course, when you become president, all the staff, you know, they they, as soon as they can, they say, oh, where are you going to pick your meetings? You know, let's go to Florence <laughs> or let's go to or uh, uh, Bali, you know. <laughs> and I said, we're going to Yangon, Myanmar. And they, they all went, where? Well, yeah." <laughs> and, we, and so I dragged them there and they hated me for it. Uh, and most of the spouses didn't come like they normally do. It's in <laughs> Paris or somewhere. Uh, and there were, there were no, there was no banking. You had to pay with your hotel room with cash. And I mean, oh my like, God. stacks of cash. Wow. Bring it a, a backpack. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's what talk about going back in time. And so just to finish that story to reward them after taking them to Yangon, Myanmar, I took them to uh, Cartagena, Colombia
1: oh, nice! and,
2: uh, laid on the beach, you know, so there you go. There you go. But that's yeah, nice I've time. been, I've been a lot of crazy places, uh, uh, somewhere, you know, the security was non-existent, uh, which it's, uh, makes for a couple of good stories, but maybe next time.
0: Yeah. We'll have to get, have to get yeah. another one in there. Well, Hey Jeff, I really appreciate you guys. You coming on. It's not easy to yeah. carve out what 52 minutes to, uh, to sit and talk to a couple of yokels like us, but we really no, appreciate I it. it.
2: I enjoyed it. And I want to, I want to go back to the very, very first thing you said, yeah. uh, and tell just a very quick, funny story. You. You said in the very beginning when you were just bantering amongst yourselves that today you have a real doctor. Well, um, that depends on what you mean by a real doctor. <laughs> because I was, I was flying somewhere. It was transatlantic. I don't remember where. And the flight attendant came up very discreetly, uh, passenger by passenger, and said, excuse me, sir, are you a doctor? Excuse me, sir, are you a doctor? Well, you know why she's doing it, right? Yeah. So she got to me and she said, excuse me, sir, are you a doctor? And I said, well, yes, I am. And she said, well, we've got a guy in, you know, 34J that's having uh, heart palpations. Uh, what do you think we should do? I said, I don't know. I said, I'm a PhD uh, in petroleum engineering. I said, if you if you have a Laplace transform you need solved, I'll be happy <laughs> to help you. But I don't know anything about heart, heart conditions.
0: You should have said drill, baby, drill.
2: Right. Drill, baby, drill. Hey, thanks, guys. I enjoyed it.
0: A lot of fun.
1: Appreciate it.